0: We're glad you've joined us for the 2020 Convention of the
1: American Council of the Blind. Hi, I'm John Gassman, and now to moderate the Helen Keller Archives presentation, here's Carla Rushapel.
2: Welcome, everybody, to the American Council of Blind Families session this morning. We are so glad that everyone is with us. This is the session on the Helen Keller collection again sponsored by ACB families and with us today we have Mike Hudson who is the director of the Callahan Museum at the American Printing House for the Blind. When ACB had its convention here in 2008 and again in 2012 Mike Hudson was at the at the um Museum, And he welcomed welcomed many ACB attendees to those conventions to the museum. The museum has changed much over the ensuing years. And now it has just acquired this tremendous collection of Helen Keller items from the American Foundation for the Blind. And Mike is going to be telling us about that collection. So with no further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Mike. And Mike, we're so happy to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, Carla. It's a great honor to be here this morning. And uh, this is obviously a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I love talking about it. Um, So um, let's go back to 1841. So in 1841, a pair of brothers named Bryce and Otis Patton had decided to try and open a school for blind children here in Louisville, Kentucky but they needed state support. So they took a few children to Frankfurt, our capital, but their demonstrations to the legislature were not very effective. So in 1842, they scheduled a second demonstration, but this time they brought in a national figure, Samuel Gridley Howe from the Perkins School in Boston. And that made the impression they needed and they got their state funding. When we bring visitors into the American Printing House for our factory tour and museum, we are trying to change their minds, their attitudes, and their actions about rehabilitation, education, and literacy for people who are blind and visually impaired. When they arrive, most only know one story, the story of Helen Keller, Annie Sullivan, and the water pump. Keller's story and that of her teacher, like Howe and his students for the Kentucky legislature, is that one perfect story that makes a lasting impression. Now, the water pump is an obvious reference to that incredible moment in the life of author and activist Helen Keller at the age of seven when her teacher, Ann Sullivan, herself only aged 20 and... I wonder how many uh, on the call here today with us are 20 or younger themselves. How do you prepare yourself for a moment in your life when at the age of 20, and after basically 20 years of being desperately poor and disabled and anonymous yourself, that, that moment over a brief summer with an incredible child that you become momentarily the most famous teacher in the world. But, but I digress. That incredible moment in the life of author and activist Helen Keller at the age of seven, when her teacher, Ann Sullivan, helps Helen overcome her physical isolation caused by deafness and blindness and teaches her the concept of language. Now, to summarize the story really quickly, there's a little girl in Alabama and she loses both her sight and hearing to a fever in 1882. Her father hires a graduate of the Perkins School, Anne Sullivan, who uses the most modern special education techniques of the day to give Helen the tools that she needed to break out. And seeing the public relations value of, of, of Anne's success, Dr. Howe publicizes the story. And Helen and Annie become international sensations. Helen receives a formal education. She graduates from Radcliffe College in 1904 and becomes a widely read author and social activist, campaigning for women's suffrage and civil rights, and becomes a tireless champion of people who are blind and visually impaired. In 1924, she and Annie go to work for the newly established American Foundation for the Blind and become its worldwide face traveling across the globe raising funds and championing people who are blind and visually impaired. By the time Helen dies in 1968 she has become an icon. Keller is an inspiration to students who are blind and visually impaired and their parents to believe that They can. Ann Sullivan, known to generations as simply teacher, is an inspiration to teachers to believe that they can. And that moment at the water pump is a moment whose clarity of purpose captures the imagination and overwhelms the fear of disability by the broader public and makes them believe that yes, against all odds, with the right tools, that they can. But that brief moment at the water pump is just one moment of many incredible moments in Helen Keller's amazing life. This year, after about three years of negotiating, the American Foundation for the Blind, where Helen and Annie both worked from 1924 until their deaths, transferred their AFB Helen Keller Archive and their general AFB archive to our museum here in Louisville at the American Printing House. AFB, after close to a hundred years in New York, has moved their physical headquarters uh, to Virginia. And they had been looking for a landing spot for the collection, which had been in cold storage for years. Our competitors for the collection were the Smithsonian Institution, the New York Historical Society, and Radcliffe College. You may have heard of some of these places before. (laughs) And since January 28th, when the collection arrived on our loading dock, I've been spending most of my time inventorying, counting, and shelving this wonderful intellectual detritus of the lives of two of the most interesting women of the 20th century, Helen and Annie and their assistant, Polly Thompson, traveled all over the world in their mission to educate and advocate about and for people who are blind or visually impaired. And wherever they went, they were celebrated and honored and given gifts of the most amazing variety. And when not on the road, the pair lived interesting lives, entertaining and being entertained by wealthy benefactors, inventors, celebrities, Writers and poets, actors and actresses, politicians, kings and princes and princesses. And in her spare time, Helen wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote at least 11 books and countless magazine articles, speeches and letters. And people wrote her. Oh, yes, they did. And my favorites in the letters are are not maybe the funny jabs from Mark Twain or the earnest notes from Alexander Graham Bell and Darling, all the finest people of the East Coast liberal establishment, but the countless letters from the little people asking Miss Helen for just a little piece of her for themselves. The little boy in Colorado writing a book report asking her to send him an original poem in Braille. A theater operator in Connecticut asking for her signature on a theater program to present to the play's director. And oh, so many others that Harried staff at AFB had to respond to because, you know, Miss Helen is in her eighties and cannot answer every letter individually. And no, she cannot send you a lock of her hair. And make no mistake, the Helen Keller brand is incredibly valuable. Um, There are, are, you know, marketing companies that can figure out ways to figure these things out. But here's a rough way to understand how the Helen Keller brand compares to that, say, of my company, the American Printing House. On Facebook, the APH site has 6,291 followers. The official Helen Keller Facebook page that AFB created has 107,000. That's a factor of 17. If you type an internet search in quotes for APH, you get 173,000 results. Type in Helen Keller and you get 9,820,000. That's a factor of 56. Now, often when visitors, uh, especially school kids and their teachers arrive in our museum, they want to see our Helen Keller exhibit because they have been studying her at school. Before this collection arrived, we had two artifacts, and one of them was actually on loan to us from AFB. And when we wrote a collecting plan a few years ago, kind of guide the development of our museum collection, and we were doing our SWOT analysis, you know, if you've done strategic planning, you know what I'm talking about. That SWOT analysis acknowledged that AFB owned the Helen Keller brand in such an absolute manner that would be futile to even try to build our collections there. It belonged to them, and that's all there was. And now that collection sits in our newly installed storage room. All of it. So what are we talking about? What is the collection? The AFB Helen Keller Archive. It is the world's largest repository of letters, speeches, press clippings, scrapbooks, photographs, architectural drawings, artifacts, and audio-visual materials related to Helen Keller, numbering to about 41,581 items and held in about 310 record boxes. It includes her letters to and from such notables as Alexander Graham Bell, Pearl Buck, Mark Twain, Calvin Coolidge, Eugene Debs, Albert Einstein, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Herbert Hoover, Lyndon Johnson, John Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Will Rogers, Eleanor Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, Margaret Sanger, and Woodrow Wilson. It includes scripts and screenplays of films, television programs, plays, and radio programs starring or about Helen Keller. It includes files about things named for her, including the Helen Keller Club, the Helen Keller School, Helen Keller Coin, Helen Keller Day, the Helen Keller Memorial Fund for the Deaf, Helen Keller Memorial Hospital, Helen Keller Memorial Week, Helen Keller National Center for the DeafBlind, the Helen Keller Quilt, the Helen Keller Rose, Helen Keller Stamp, and the Helen Keller Tulip. It includes drafts. Manuscripts and correspondent resulted, re, correspondence resulting from her 11 books and countless articles and 475 speeches that Keller made between 1902 and 1961 on topics such as faith, rehabilitation, blindness prevention, birth control, philosophy, atomic energy, and many, many more. It includes 10 boxes of press clippings from 1880 to 1986 and many scrapbooks also filled with press clippings. It includes architectural plans of two of her homes. It includes over 2000 separate photographs and 23 photo albums. It includes 25 audio recordings and three films. It includes over 250 artifacts, including sculptures of her hands and her face, paintings, gifts from dignitaries across the globe, and all manner of awards. Now, over the past few years, um, AFB, the American Foundation for the Blind, and their just absolutely amazing archivist, Helen Selston, Uh, with the support of the National Endowment for the Humanities and others, has worked a miracle of their own. They have scanned and described literally every artifact, letter, and photograph in the AFB Helen Keller Archive, and those are posted on their website at www.afb.org forward slash Helen Keller Archive. If you just type in Helen Keller archive into your google search you'll get the the, the archive website and anyone in the world can study these things virtually for free and uh, I strongly encourage um, everybody to visit that website and browse through the archive and learn more about these amazing ladies and their lives now um, I have selected a few objects from the archive to talk about today Um, and we're very grateful for our collaboration with AFB to be able to share the real things someday in our museum. Um, Now I selected items for my show and tell this afternoon almost at random. I just wanted to give you an idea of what the collection holds. First um, is a letter uh, typed uh, probably by Helen herself. She did most of her own typing and it's dated June 3rd, 1913. It is addressed to Mr. P.W. Kirchbaum, and Kirchbaum was the treasurer for a group of uh, union trade unions uh, uh, folks who were striking against the silk industry. And Helen had read about this strike in the International Socialist v- Review, which was a magazine that she subscribed to. And this, this is the letter. Dear Comrade, I am sending a check to help the Patterson silk workers in their brave fight for the most elemental justice, the right to live. The accounts I have read of their self-sacrifice and indomitable courage fill me with admiration. Their cause is my cause. It is true, I am not one of the victims of wrong industrial conditions but the weight of the burdens that the workers of the world carry lies heavy upon my heart. I feel their hunger, their privations, in my eyes starved of light. I feel their bondage in my own physical dependence, and I cannot be happy while conditions exist that make childhood bitter and motherhood a sorrow. What demand could be more just, more appealing to our human instincts than that of the Patterson Strikers? the demand for a fair wage and reasonable labor conditions. Strange that there should be any right feeling human being who does not sympathize with them, who does not use every means in his power to help them in their struggle. And passing strange that there should be men who will be, obey orders and fire up on their brothers at the command of an officer. His eyes must indeed be dark, who does not see that there must be something very wrong when the workers, the men and women who produce the wealth of the nation are themselves ill-paid, ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed. His ears must indeed be stopped who does not hear the desperation in the voice of the people crying out against cruel poverty, hunger, and the power that robs them of their children's happiness. Dull indeed is the heart of him who turns his back upon such misery and supports a system that grinds the life and soul out of men and women. Helen Keller could sure write, she was a lifetime socialist, a conviction that came directly from her own visual impairment. After she graduated from Radcliffe College in 1904, she began researching the conditions that were affecting people who were blind in America. And what she discovered shocked her. Many people who were blind, most people who were blind lived in crummy housing. Many had crummy jobs, if they had jobs at all. And they worked for low wages and in horrific conditions. And what's more Helen found, so did a lot of other Americans. Americans from immigrant backgrounds in particular, or Americans with brown or black skin. And many couldn't vote, women in particular. And Helen spent her whole life championing their causes. And the collection is filled with articles that she wrote and speeches that she gave on their behalf, just like this one. But if you think Helen spent all of her time at the barricades, you'd be wrong. Both while she was in school and after she went to work as a fundraiser for the American Foundation for the Blind in the 1920s, she spent a lot of time hobnobbing with the rich and famous, including the very capitalists she often demonstrated. My second object that I want to uh, share with you uh, this afternoon is an undated photograph of Helen talking to the carmaker, Henry Ford one of the wealthiest men in America. Um, when you look at the photograph, it's Helen is standing very close to, to Mr. Ford and she is touching his mouth and lips with her left hand, which was one of the ways that she was able to read lips by hand. They were standing outside a building, we don't know what the building is, and, and Helen is wearing a lovely long sleeve, loose white blouse, a high-waisted skirt, and a broad brim hat with decoration. Everyone is smiling. Helen and Annie's fame provided them with instant access to all the other thinkers and doers of her day, all the way up to world leaders, royalty, and American presidents. But she always had to walk a fine line between her activism and the support from wealthy friends whose patronage allowed her to do her chosen work. I find that very interesting about Helen and Annie, the fine line they had to walk between their the principles that they wanted to fight for and where their money was actually coming from. Now, not all world leaders were in love with Helen. <laughs> in 1933, at the behest of German Chancellor Adolf Hitler, the German Student Union embarked upon a series of book burnings, destroying books that they deemed dangerous to German youth, and Helen's books found their way onto the pyre. When she got word of it, Helen sent a telegram to Germany that was widely published in American newspapers, and the collections hold this draft of her letter. It's fascinating. It's typed on a typewriter. Again, I'm sure that Helen composed it herself on her own typewriter and then in pencil it is edited. And I strongly suspect that that's Polly Thompson, uh, Helen's assistant, editing the text of the telegram. Um, But this is how it ended up reading. To the student body of Germany, May 9th, 1933. History has taught you nothing if you think you can kill ideas. Tyrants have tried to do that often before, and the ideas have risen up in their might and destroyed them. You can burn my books and the books of the best minds in Europe, but the ideas in them have seeped through a million channels and will continue to quicken other minds. Do not imagine your barbarities to the Jews are unknown here. God sleepeth not, and he will visit his judgment upon you as surely as upon the wicked kings of Judea who defied his word. Better were, for, were it for you to have a millstone hung round your neck and sink into the sea than to be hated and despised of all men. Signed, Helen Keller. <laughs> I love that telegram. And uh, uh, if you're not a Bible reader, and of course, Helen was deeply religious and uh, uh, read her, her braille Bible until literally the dots uh, uh, wore out. Uh, this is uh, an allusion to a story in Matthew uh, about what happens to uh, uh, people who don't uh, take care of little children. Um, so Helen knew her, she knew her literature, and she was not afraid to uh, speak truth to power, uh, and I love that about her. Now, my final kind of show-and-tell thing uh, this afternoon uh, its one of my favorite things in the collection, although it might seem strange to you. Um, in her role as a world ambassador for the American Foundation for the Blind, Helen and Annie and Polly Thompson traveled all over the world, and at every stop, uh, she would be feted and celebrated and treated like royalty, and they would leave each place just loaded down with gifts. And she went to Japan, I think more than any other place except maybe Scotland, uh, and she went there three times. And thousands of people would throng to see her as she arrived and departed. Uh, It was a big deal. Um, And more than any other single country, this collection that we have now is filled with gifts from the Japanese people. And so, my artifact uh, this afternoon is a cricket cage. It's a little cage, maybe about 10 inches square, and it's totally made from bamboo with narrow little bars. And then there's a little side, a sliding door in the side that opens up, and it's decorated with some colored beads. Um, it turns out uh, that keeping crickets as pets is actually more of a Chinese thing, and it, it began thousands and thousands of years ago but uh it at some point crossed uh over to japan and it was something that people in japan did as well and so some host at some little town in japan i'm sure gave this cricket cage to helen i don't know that it has a tremendous significance i just happen to like it maybe because it's so humble others of you might prefer this gorgeous and very large porcelain urn that was given to Helen by the Empress of Japan, or you might like her 1955 Oscar uh, Academy Award or her Presidential Medal of Freedom, or even you might like the robes that she wore to receive her doctorate. All of those are in the collection too. So I guess you can imagine how excited I am about this opportunity uh, for my museum and the American Printing House And I know that all my colleagues at APH share share my excitement. Is it gonna take resources and time and energy and capital? You bet. Um, This collection and the Helen Keller brand that it represents is gonna give a tremendous public relations boost to our museum. For almost her entire life, Helen Keller was the thought leader that propelled the field of blindness and we become the beneficiary of all her hard work. I think that the underlying reason that APH opened its museum in 1994 was this vague feeling that our history was being lost, that things were being thrown away that ought not to be thrown away, that young teachers and young specialists were growing up not knowing the roots of the profession. And we're forgetting the struggles that the pioneers went through to get the field recognized to create standards to create training curriculum and to earn government support and that the general public were generally ignorant of what it meant to be blind how people that are blind live their lives and put their pants on in the morning and brush their teeth all by themselves and read books and work and do what they want when they want and that people that are blind themselves don't always know their own history, don't know about the struggles of their grandparents and parents for the basic rights to get an education and hold down a job. I have that vague feeling myself sometimes about younger generations. They didn't have it as hard as I had, honey, let me tell you. (laughs) But I also think that history can be inspiring and informational in our everyday lives. Now, of course, I think that, right? It's my job. But think about your own first day at school, or maybe better, your own first day at your first job, armed maybe with a piece of paper from a fancy school and nothing else. And can you tell me that having a role model like Ann Sullivan, knowing that she persevered through the challenges and succeeded beyond her wildest imaginings, can you tell me that that does not give you some confidence? Imagine how she felt, stepping off that train in the wilds of Alabama, armed only with a high school education, so far away from everything she ever knew, her poor eyes aching only weeks removed from her most recent eye surgery, straining to understand the accents and make herself and her Boston Irish understood and to hide the fact from these ex-Confederate gentry that her immigrant father was so destitute that he left her and her brother at the almshouse. And when she arrived at the Perkins school, her dress, her hose, her shoes had all been given to her by the fallen women from that same almshouse and were the only things she owned in the world. And if she failed to work a miracle for Mr. and Mrs. Keller, she was going to lose her position and end up where? And you sit there Today, with your college degree and your unemployment insurance and your social security and your city buses and Uber and your Internet packed with information right at your fingertips and your cell phones and all your modern conveniences and the story of Ann Sullivan doesn't give you confidence that you can make it. And how fragile individual memory is, right? I'm 56. I find that I remember less and less, (laughs) and there just isn't any room up there in the end. So if somebody doesn't tuck it in a file and label it and make sure it doesn't go out on the porch for the trash man when Aunt Viv passes, well, maybe nobody is left to remember it and write it down. And then it's just gone. So, What are we going to do with these incredible stories? We are going to build something entirely new. New exhibits, new storage, new research rooms, new education spaces, new websites, new online resources, new directions. And we have options. We could go the conservative route and tear out one of our current exhibits and install a new one. We have some grant applications in for that. We we think we could do that fairly quickly, um, say 15 months. Second option would be to remodel the floor below our current museum gallery into a new gallery focusing on Keller and her story. And we've talked with Solid Light, that's an exhibit firm here in Louisville, and we imagine that that new exhibit would be very media heavy because Helen herself was a, a child of the media and be designed to just really make a major impression. But the third option is the more ambitious one. And it's an idea that our leadership team has been developing and it is gaining traction. In this, in this third option, we would actually build a new front entrance to the uh, American Printing House. And so the museum and the Hall of Fame for leaders and legends in the blindness field would become the lobby to APH. And just as 21C here in Louisville has pioneered the idea of the hotel museum, uh, we would experiment with the idea of the factory museum. Something similar to what uh, you get when you go to Louisville Slugger, the baseball bat manufacturer here in Louisville, and, and a number of distilleries here in town have also done the same thing. Right now, all that's on the table. And over the next few years, we are definitely gonna be looking for partners to join us in this wonderful adventure. And that's, that's what Helen said. Quote, life is either an adventure or nothing at all. Helen was a hero, a hero to the blind and visually impaired, a hero to the deaf, a hero to women, a hero to civil rights, a hero to labor, and a hero that we sorely need yesterday and today. And we look forward to the task of telling her story at the American Printing House for the Blind. I wanna thank you all very much for joining, let me join you.
2: All right, we'd like to take questions. Mike, that was an absolutely tremendous presentation. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. All right, so let's take some questions. I was
3: wondering what exhibits you had on uh, Annie Sullivan, in particular.
1: Right. So you know, as of right now, we have very, very little on Helen and Annie. That's all part of the of the plan. And 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 by the way, I don't. I. You know, we talk a lot about Helen, but I don't think you can separate the two from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we when we when we install the new exhibits, we're definitely going to be talking, you know, co-equal because the two uh, ladies really form an amazing partnership. Uh, as uh, and so it's it's definitely both teacher and student, and then the student goes on really to surpass the teacher. Uh, I think that's that's kind of the story. But right now in the museum we have almost nothing you know both annie and helen are in the hall of fame so they have a plaque upstairs in the hall of fame but in terms of their story in the museum very little but now that we've got this new collection i'm going to be able to do so many new things
4: hi this was a wonderful presentation i have kind of an odd question but i'm curious Um, do you have like one of helen keller's canes did she use a cane and if so what type of cane
1: That's that's a great that's a great question and it's also in the answer is interesting and the answer is no helen did not use it she loved dogs she had dogs her entire life she even had dogs that came from the seeing eye but she never used a dog guide for uh her o-n-m she never used a long cane for o-n-m she always used a uh a uh, a sighted guide and Remember that she was born in 1880, so she comes along, you know, by the time the long cane becomes uh, a thing uh, in World War II, Helen was already uh, 60 years old. And so, you know, it's not always easy uh, for an old dog to learn new tricks. But also, Helen was both deaf and blind, and so there is an amazing amount of information that you get, even through your long cane, that is is actually based on hearing. So um, for most of her life, whenever you see her, she's always got a sighted guide with her or uh, like at her house in Connecticut at Arkan Ridge, she had a walking path uh, created with a a rope as a handrail that she could follow around and go on quite long walks all around the property. But as far as orientation and mobility uh, were concerned, she always relied on a sighted guide. That's a great question, though.
5: And Julie, I guess there's a lot of things that I've known about her over the years, but I feel kind of ignorant. Um, What is the water pump story? Could you enlighten some of us? Sure. sure.
1: So, you know, the 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 uh, basically. uh, Annie goes down there. Um, and Helen is, uh, not very disciplined, uh, and, uh, does not understand the concept of language that these symbols stand for, uh, letters. And, and so, you know, this, this story is, is kind of well known in terms, because it's such a critical part of the play, the miracle worker and the subsequent movies, um, And so uh, Annie is trying to teach her the manual alphabet, spelling uh, the letters into uh, Helen's hand. At the same time, she's trying to teach Helen that when, say, she spells cup in her hand, that C-U-P stands for a physical thing, right? That's what language is, right? Language is symbols that stand for real things. But Helen can't get it until... A critical morning where they're working um, out by the water pump and Helen makes the connection between W-A-T-E-R being spelled into her hand and the water that is coming out of uh, uh, the pump. And that moment is transformative for her because she's very bright and actually she's really good with languages and she proves that throughout her life. But as soon as she gets that, that, critical piece of that tool if you want to think about it that way she immediately starts figuring out how to spell and she is writing letters to people uh within a month or so and uh and and by the time you know she's uh 20 years old she's speaks several languages fluently and reads five more and uh yeah it's just amazing but it's that moment at the water pump where annie is able to give Helen that tool of language.
5: The light bulb effect finally yes. went off.
1: The light bulb goes off. Yeah. So it's this eureka moment. And, but see, here's the problem with the water pump moment. If, if, if you're familiar with the, the miracle worker, that's all everybody knows about Helen Keller. And even during her own lifetime, everybody pretty much wanted her to stay that brilliant, simple little seven year old girl, pretty. And, uh, amazing and a miracle right they didn't really want her to grow up to be <laughs> a you know a women's suffrage a, a suffragette right or they didn't want to hear her talk about birth control or any of the other uh you know uh controversial issues of the day they wanted her to just stay a little girl and we can't we you know uh, can't let helen stay just the little girl at the pump we've got to understand her entire life because she is a complex and amazing person. So next we have Betsy Grenovich.
3: Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, very much for your presentation. Thanks, Betsy. And um, it's interesting because I'm part of families and part of lions and our lions, our Georgia blind lions group, just had someone come in and speak about Helen Keller. And we also are getting ready to have someone come and speak to us. Hopefully next month from the, Helen Keller National Center. So I really hope that as soon as you get this museum up, you make it known because I definitely want to make a trip there to see it. I live in Georgia, so it's not that bad of a drive. But thank you so much. And
1: Betsy, you probably know this, that the Lions Club, you know, obviously nationally, the Lions Club vision is one of their big, big uh, issues always. And it has been since the 1920s when who went to talk to them? Helen Keller did. Helen Keller. And she challenged them to become the Knights for the Blind. And, and they took her up on her challenge. And even to this day, uh, across this country, the uh, Lions Clubs do incredible work all over the nation uh, working on, on blindness causes.
3: Yes, I do. And thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Betsy. OK, uh, next is Lori Scharf.
3: Thank you for your presentation. Um, I have to say I have met uh, some people who are deaf and have known Helen Keller and they've had some pretty interesting views over the years and I like that you showed a picture of her using Todoma because a lot of people did not do not understand that that was one of her ways of communicating when Annie was not around uh-huh. um, additionally what two houses do you have floor plans of?
1: I think they're they're both of the two houses that we now call Arkan Ridge. Uh, her, her house in Connecticut was called Arkan Ridge. Right. And in nineteen forty uh, something like that. She was on a goodwill trip uh, to Europe, uh, kind of exploring what had happened to, uh, the various blindness organizations in, uh, in Europe as a result of the destruction of world war ii and while she was gone her house burned down and uh and so her friends and the foundation raised the money uh in 1947 to rebuild her house and completely furnish it so we have both the plans of the original arkin ridge mm-hmm. and then we have the Arkan ridge that was built in 47 to replace the, the burned house okay
3: and do you have anything about her house that was in um either uh in south hold in new york we
1: have we have a ton of letters and things that were written from there
3: ah okay
1: mm-hmm. but uh and and rentham hills and some others but um i i, I have not seen any furnishings or anything like that the, yeah, that, there- that 1947 fire was devastating <laughs> to the historical record
3: right right yes yeah so yeah. Right yeah there's there's a an effort to re um, allow the, I'm going to say rebuilding or whatever you want to call it of the house out in South Hold.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that would be interesting. I'd like to hear more about that.
4: Yes. I, I have another odd question. Um, I know you said that she read her Bible till the dots were gone. Do you have any other idea what kind of other books she liked to read? I mean, was she a classic? Was she mystery?
1: Well, bear in mind that, so she loved to read, um, and she read omnivorously. Uh, she read anything she could get in braille, obviously. But she also subscribed to print publications and would have uh, an assistant, usually Polly. Uh, well, initially it would have been uh, Annie, and then later it was Polly. Read them out loud to her. So uh, we we the collection includes what was left of her personal library. I have not looked at it too closely, but um, uh, she, she when she was first growing up when she was young one of the just facts about literature for people that were blind was uh typically it was just the classics so you know she if if you wonder a little about about her idealism it's because the books she's reading are um you know the odyssey the aeneid uh you know uh latin and greek uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, these kind of classic books. Those are the ones that are being translated, uh, not into Braille as we know it now, but into, uh, uh, raised letters. Uh, and so when she learned to read initially, she would have been reading those books. And, and primarily, if you look at the, the bookshelves at, uh, residential schools for the blind, that's what they have on their shelves. They're the classics. But Helen was fortunate enough, um, that because of all of her contacts and all of her friends, that uh, she she got reading materials from all over the world. That's one reason why she was able to speak. Uh, I mean, to read in French and read in German was so that she could read a lot of these braille materials that she could get from overseas. Um, and uh, when Annie uh, and uh, she were at uh, Radcliffe College um they hired a young man to be their secretary john macy of course annie and john macy fall in love and eventually get married well john was a john was a pretty uh uh strong socialist and so he was responsible for getting a lot of these uh german uh and uh, european uh, books written by prominent socialists into uh helen's hands um, but she also liked reading novels and that sort of thing. She was pretty omnivorous. If she could get a hold of it, she she loved to read it. Okay, next we have uh, Michael Bington.
4: Uh, I've done some study of Helen Keller's life. I did work as a uh, not on-site person with the Helen Keller National Center for a few years, and there are three things that I'm aware of, but don't know nearly as much as I'd like to about. I'm wondering if you could comment on them. One is, uh, I know that shortly after her college career, before she started working with uh, AFB, she did some uh, entertaining on vaudeville. Yes. uh, Uh I also know that uh, Helen had a love interest and that because of this desire to keep her, the little girl image and a few things like that, many of the people who were assisting her discouraged that love interest. I also know that uh, her socialism ran afoul of Joe McCarthy and that she almost got herself investigated. And I would like to know if you have materials or additional knowledge on any of those issues. And thank you very much.
1: Sure. Uh, Just because it was the last question, I'll start with the last one first. But uh, you're 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 right. And you're wrong, Michael. She actually did get investigated. And, and there is a nice thick file on her that uh, uh, Edgar Hoover and the FBI had on Helen Keller. And uh, I don't have the link uh, fresh to mind, but that all those files have been released to the public and you can go online and read Helen Keller's file and they were keeping an eye on her. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think that in the, in the final analysis, she was kind of untouchable as long as she didn't do anything too egregious. You just, she, she was so famous that uh, to go after her would have been a public relations nightmare for uh, McCarthy or the FBI, but they did investigate her. Um, let's see, your, your first question was about vaudeville. And I know that the collection contains, um, there's some, there's actually some um, a film of her and Annie doing their vaudeville show Uh, and basically what they were doing, they were just trying to raise money. Uh, You know, they were trying right after she graduated, graduated from college, they were figuring out how are we going to support ourselves? And so they, you know, she knew she was going to be a writer. And so she wrote the story of of her life and that was published her, her first autobiography. Um, But they, they needed, they needed to raise money. Now they were, they, they had some donors, that had been donating money to them while she was in college to, to help pay for her education. Um, and even after that, uh, for a long time, she, she did not want to, uh, live on charity. And so she and Annie were trying to figure out anything they could do to figure out how, you know, through her writing. And then they, and then they actually did go on the vaudeville circuit. And so, you know, you might have a, you know, uh, a monkey that could, uh, that could juggle, and then you'd have Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan come out and tell the story of of how uh, Annie was able to teach uh, Helen the miracle of language. Um, there's a great some great pictures actually in the collection of her sitting at a makeup table in some crummy theater somewhere, you know, putting her stage makeup on. Uh, now, Helen loved those performances. Uh, she enjoyed doing it. Annie hated it. Uh, she just didn't, she felt demeaned by the whole, you know, the whole rigmarole. Um, then your, your, your middle question was about her relationship with Peter, Peter, what was his last name? It's not coming to mind. Uh, but, um, yeah, he was after, after John, uh, Macy and, uh, and Annie split up, they, uh, they hired this, uh, uh, one of John Macy's, uh, protégés. To be her secretary for a while, and we don't know a lot about it. There's not a lot uh, in the in the in the record about what actually happened, but it it does seem that he had asked her. He had learned the manual alphabet, and so he was able to talk to her, and that he had he'd asked her to marry him, and that she had said yes. And a couple of nights, uh, her family down in Alabama found her out on the front porch with her suitcase, uh, packed, but. Uh, As you as you uh, understood, Michael, uh, her family did not think it was appropriate for her to get married. um, And they they pretty much drove the young man off and uh, and uh, and convinced Helen herself that it was probably a bad idea. Um, If if we start studying those periods of the 20s, uh, there's there's an awful lot of emphasis on eugenics. And this idea that people with handicaps should not um, should not be parents. And um, it's a sad kind of chapter um, in our history. And Helen herself was a little conflicted on the whole idea of eugenics. And there's some confusing stuff in even her own writings about how she felt about whether or not people who are handicapped with handicaps with disabilities should uh, should uh, should be parents or. So um, it's a it's an interesting Fagan. I think his name was Peter Fagan, was the young man, and uh, we don't know much about what happened to Peter Fagan after this uh, episode with him and Helen. So it would be it would be uh, one of the things I would love to find out more about would be to track him down and figure out what happened to him in his later life. I have a couple of of
0: questions for you, Mike. But before that, I. I just want to say that I thought your presentation was one of the best that I've ever heard on Helen Keller. You really showed your excitement and your enthusiasm for her life. The stories you told were compelling. I hope that you will find a way to um, to produce some podcasts and uh, and replicate the kind of stories that you shared because it was really really moving. And uh, I I'm not easy one to give a, a compliment or congratulations <laughs> to a presenter. So uh, definitely accept that.
1: My thank questions. You, thank are, you, Larry. Let me just say quickly that we are, we're, we're doing our, our website totally. And we hope to have kind of a podcast newsletter. And so uh, that's great advice. And we, we will, we'll, we'll take you up on that.
0: Okay. My two questions are number one, how many languages did she uh, not dominate, but was able to understand? or communicate in? And secondly, um, how many of her actual speeches, her oral speeches, will you have available in the uh,
1: museum? So bear in mind that all of her speeches are on that, are are, are scanned in, and you can read them at AFB's website, okay? So all of those are available. Our challenge, and it kind of goes along with something else you said, our challenge is For the museum is how do we figure out a way to take all of these written things, these these documents and turn them into compelling experiences when people come to the museum and so that they feel like that uh, that they've been there for that 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 encounter with the authentic. Um, So, you know, we have hundreds of her speeches in the collection, and obviously we're going to be looking at critical issues uh, that have affected the American democracy. And we want to explore what what Helen thought about them and, and and not not just to poke people, but to to get them get our, our own people, the American people to think about their how they feel about things, why they what 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 drives them. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to you guys right now. What drives you? What what events are happening in our in our world that drive you to want to speak out, to be an activist? Because Helen was that kind of a person. She was, all, she never, she just didn't blink. She she was unafraid to say what needed to be said. Uh, even if she, as she got older, she had learned, as many of us do, how that you can catch more flies with honey, right? But she was still a, a lioness. And uh, uh, so uh, I can't say exactly how many of her speeches are gonna be out right now, but I can tell you that all of them are available. Uh, if you just if you just Google uh, Helen Keller Archive, you'll get the AFB's website and everything has been scanned in. It's just an amazing amount of work that AFB has done. And we are really happy to be collaborating on, on this so that we can let people actually see the real things.
2: Okay. Um, but can I ask a follow-up there? Mike, do you have any that are uh, actually, or, you know, oral recordings right. of her speech. Right.
1: So so one of the things that Helen was really proud of and also very frustrated on was her ability to learn to speak, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's also a little bit controversial in terms of deaf education. Uh you know, there's this whole oralist tradition is what it's called that's associated with Dr. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell, who was, of course, a big mentor uh, in Helen's education. Well, today, inside deaf education circles, you know, Bell is a controversial figure because, uh, you know, today, the the, the primary way that uh, most deaf people communicate is through American Sign Language in America. Right. And uh, while many folks that are deaf or hard of hearing know how to read lips, um, they it's 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 a it's always been a you know, kind of a controversy about whether or not they should have to re- learn to read lips or people who uh, want to talk to somebody who's deaf or blind uh, or hard of hearing should learn to use sign language. So that is a part of Helen's story that we need to investigate. And I, this is a long way of answering your question, Carla. The, the, I only know of one uh, speech that's in the collection. I have not listened to it yet. I believe it was delivered overseas. But although Helen would stand up and speak a little bit, she never really got to the point where she felt or her handlers felt like that she was, that her enunciation was clear enough that everybody could understand. So although she spoke a little bit out loud, mainly she would spell into uh, her assistant's hand and her assistant would, would deliver the speech.
3: Okay, this is uh, Teresa here in Little Rock.
5: I really don't have a question, but I do want to say I appreciated this uh, uh, presentation. And I'm, I really, um, I don't want to use the word amazed, but uh, given the time that uh, Helen lived in, not only was it rough for a, uh, a person with a disability, but it was rough for women in general. I mean, uh, you know, to be a suffragette was a very daring thing to do back in the you know back in the uh, early part of the 20th century especially up into the 1920s
1: that's right Teresa and and I think the thing that's interesting to me is that Helen's activism evolves out of her blindness and her study of conditions for blind people and just as you say what she did what she discovered when she looked into it was that uh, a lot of people who are blind or vision impaired had it rough but they weren't the only ones that there were all kinds of other Americans who were in bad situations and and Helen, you know, decided she was going to try and do something about that.
0: Hi, I'd just like to reiterate with everybody what a fantastic presentation you're giving. And I had a question. You mentioned that Helen won an Oscar, an Academy Award. What category was that for and for which movie?
1: Sure. It was uh, 1955. The movie was, it actually came out with a couple of different titles, but basically it was Helen Keller in her story. And uh, it was narrated by a lady named Catherine Cornell, who was a famous art uh, actress of the time. And the category was, I think, best documentary. Good
5: morning, everyone. Betty Passanante from Philadelphia. And uh, I'm in my 70s. So I sort of grew up Learning about Helen Keller and hearing about Helen Keller, and she was still alive when I was a little girl, mm-hmm. and some of the people that worked with her at Overlook School for the blind uh that I'm sorry some of the people that I worked with at Overlook School for the Blind had met her and known her and walked with her and various and talked with her in various things so, and also yeah. and I was right when the miracle worker came out, my goodness, we were all excited watching that story <laughs> I think and nobody you know people don't realize that didn't that came from a show called Playhouse Ninety. It wasn't yes. the movie originally. Playhouse 90, with a lady named Teresa Wright, who played Annie. And I think Patty McCormick might have played uh, Helen on that. I'm not sure, but it was just, it was amazing. It was so different and, you know, and, and all that. But so that's, and your presentation, by the way, is fabulous. It's wonderful. I guess the question I had was, while you're, while this museum is taking shape, are you going to have any sort of documentaries or exhibits or explanation or some kind of a, Way to start telling the story, even as your museum is uh, is is shaping up. Is, is, yeah, shaping up.
1: Yeah. But, yes. So um, yes. So from the pretty much um, first part of March, I think we had a display in um, in our main gallery with about twenty of the mo- of kind of highlight items. And uh, of course, we've been closed now since March seventeenth, unfortunately, because of the coronavirus. But uh, we will we will have a rotating case. Well, actually, one, two, three cases where we rotate things through. So you'll everybody that comes to visit will be able to uh, to see some of the stuff uh, that 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 uh, that's in the collection.
3: All right. Next,
0: Pam Coffee.
2: Okay, you actually answered one of the questions I was going to ask, and that was about the Oscar. And I'm not sure, but what I saw that documentary when, uh, oh, back in the 60s, maybe Uh early 60s, that was on television.
1: I bet it it was on television, that's right.
2: Yes, and I think I saw that. Uh, And she did speak just a little bit, but it was hard to understand her.
1: You mean you're, my, that's your? Is that your memory of the documentary that you saw? Yes. Yeah. That yeah. she
2: did speak a little bit in that th- that Helen herself yes. spoke a little bit.
1: She worked and, very hard on yes. getting that. That's a very hard skill for someone who is deaf.
3: Absolutely.
5: Uh,
1: really hard to imitate something, uh, you know, that you can't hear. So she right. worked very hard on that.
3: Our next.
5: Person is Karen Campbell. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, you addressed one of the questions, you know. I think there are a lot of people, especially in the deafblind community, who feel that uh, Annie and Polly probably exercised a lot of control. Um, that's a subject probably open for debate. But um, how she learned and stuff, did that provide any, uh, any pathways to uh, education today for deafblind children or no?
1: Well, I guess my answer to that, Karen, would be that uh, Helen received the benefit of the most advanced educational techniques of her day. But very little of the techniques that were used with her would be used today. Yeah, we that was at the infancy of uh, deafblind education. But the successes that Annie had with Helen uh, uh, showed what what was possible. in, in other words, the end, it showed the, what the end of the road was. Uh, and but of course today we have, we have, uh, we studied a lot more and we have much, much different techniques. Um, but I, I still think that her, the story is, is, is an inspiration to people what, what's possible with a little bit of accommodation and hard work. And, and that's true of all of us in all of our lives. We all need a little help and then we got to put the, we got to put the time in.
2: Um, I just want to thank Michael. Michael, you've been fabulous. Thank you so much for coming and being with us today. ACB Families does meet twice a month, and uh, we have an email list, families at acblist.org. Please feel free to join that as well. Thanks again for coming, and everybody continue to have a great convention. Thank you.